0: She's a fan favorite, her name is Dr. Suzanne Turner and she is the founder and medical director of Vine Medical in Georgia and she is an incredible educator as well. Suzanne teaches for A4M and a bunch of other places as well. She's a big educator in the peptide space and also in the regenerative medicine and healthy aging space. Today, we talk about lab tests and lab results. What are the numbers you wanna be looking for when you're interpreting your blood work? I mean, we know that the ranges are huge, We want to know what's that narrower range. What is the optimal range for blood work? So this was Suzanne's idea. It's a great episode. And stick around till the end because, of course, we get into peptides. I mean, we couldn't possibly let Suzanne go without talking about peptides. So if you're looking to get in touch with Dr. Suzanne Turner, you can find her on Instagram, Dr. Suzanne Turner, and also email vinemedical.com, and that is her office in georgia you guys know where to find me if you're looking to connect with me you can come to my website natnidham.com and i have just launched in the past month a new community on mighty networks called bsp community it is private it is not censored and there's going to be a ton of value in there for you guys so come check it out go to natnidham.com and look for the tab BSP community, and you'll get a whole list of benefits there. And of course, you can find me on Instagram at Natalie Nidham, and still on Facebook in the Optimizing Superhuman Performance group. So lots and lots of places we can connect. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your comments, your questions, and everything else that I get from you guys. I so appreciate you. We're going to hear quickly from one of our sponsors and then dive into the episode. Our sponsor today has a Black Friday offer you will not want to miss. So you'll want to stick around to the end of this message. Magnesium deficiency, as you know, is rampant and can contribute to a wide spectrum of symptoms from irritability to anxiety, insomnia to muscle cramps and twitches, even constipation and poor quality sleep. This is why I exclusively recommend and use Magnesium Breakthrough because it's the only full spectrum magnesium supplement with seven forms of magnesium that your body can actually use and absorb, allowing you to upgrade your sleep, your brain, and so much more. Bioptimizers is having an incredible Black Friday offer from November 21st to 29th. You can get Mag Breakthrough and all of the other Bioptimizers best-in-class products for 25% off. They only offer this discount once a year, so you do not want to miss this. Just go to bioptimizers.com forward slash Bionat and enter code BIONAT to get 25% off any order. Now, remember that by Optimizer stands behind their products with a 365 day money back guarantee. So there's literally no risk to you. And if you're listening to this after the Black Friday sale and missed a special offer, not to worry. There's always a 10% discount for my listeners with the code BIONAT. But This offer is live till November 29th. So if you got here just in time, that link again is bioptimizers.com forward slash Bionat and code Bionat. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that all of the information presented in this podcast is for information purposes only. No medical advice, no diagnosing, no treatments suggested here. Before you try anything that you hear about or learn about here, make sure that you check with your medical provider. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Suzanne Turner. It is such a pleasure to have you here today.
1: Natalie, what a treat to see you. I'm so glad
0: to get to spend some time with you. Oh, me too. I've been looking forward to this podcast forever. I'm like, yes, we have a date. All right. These podcasts, these episodes are always amazing, guys. If you've listened to any of my past episodes with Dr. Turner or heard her speak on anybody else's podcast, you know that we're in for a beautiful ride today. So what we're going to talk about today and this is um, this is Suzanne's idea which I think is brilliant we're going to talk about t- lab tests like basic metabolic lab tests and what they can tell you and also give you some ideas of what are the optimal ranges that a functional medicine practitioner is going to be looking for versus maybe a more conventionally trained doctor where or even the labs like the labs I, I think they establish their ranges, and you can speak to this better than I can, Suzanne, but I've heard that it's, you know, it's not arbitrary, but it's not particularly scientific or functional in the way they establish those ranges. And so a lot of people are being missed while they're, you know, as we're progressing towards a, an imbalanced state, we miss those signs. And so by the time we're trying to get back to balance, we're so out of whack. It's just a longer road back. So maybe- Exactly.
1: So most labs, I think, are done on a um, on a bell shaped curve. We know that from high school, taking our exams and trying to get the best grade we could. (laughs) And um, so the middle of that bell shaped curve is the mean. And then we take, you know, one standard deviation from that and then two standard deviations, which is where we decide what normal is. And so normal changes over time because of the change in population, the change in people who are getting the tests done. Um, It's obviously skewed towards people who are going to the doctor. So people who don't go to the doctor aren't getting their tests done. So we aren't catching those people either. So it is a skewed population of normal. And so you have to realize that just because you are, if you are symptomatic, but you fall outside or inside the range of normal, does that mean that you, are, that you are normal? If you are asymptomatic, but you fall outside, does that mean that you are abnormal? Do you have to treat a lab? And of course we always are taught in school, never treat the lab, always treat the person. And so it's easy to fall outside of that as you are a regular um, practitioner because you don't treat the person. You have seven minutes, so you don't have time to do that. And as we have provided ourselves because of the different um, kind of practices that we have as, as um, you know advanced medicine or um, integrative medicine practitioners, as we have provided ourselves more time, we actually are able to do a little bit more speci- specialized medicine. Some of the labs that we do take a lot longer to interpret and we'll go through some of those as we keep talking.
0: Amazing. Yeah, no, I love what you just said. And I mean, it's, and you know, I think a case in point with that one the most common thing we see is with thyroid patients, right? Like treating thyroid um, is—it's a bit of a nightmare. I mean, some people need to have a higher TSH number. I mean, we learned this in, in when I was d- doing my training around the genetic testing that I that I use. Some people genetically need a higher TSH number to be what their normal is, but right. but with the ranges that the way that they are right now. There's so many people that are subclinically, like they're not symptomatic, and yet they're, they're subclinically hypothyroid kind of thing, and they're not right. being treated. And they're just getting worse and worse. And to your point, then you get the people who are getting the treatment and they still feel horrible. And their doctor's saying, well, it's all in your head because you've, you know, you had this lab result, I gave you the medication it's doing its thing. So clearly there's something wrong with you. And you're like, so you must have a Prozac deficiency. <laughs> that was the last podcast we did together. Yep. <laughs> and you know, you've these poor people walking around thinking, oh my God, and then their cholesterol goes off the charts and they're mm-hmm. put on a satin. And, you know, we'll have that conversation later when we're talking about LDL HDL, but it is, it is a bit of a, it, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a, a whirlpool of, like this vicious circle of things that feed each other. So, okay, so
1: let's, where are we going to start? What? What? Well, staying on the subject of thyroid, let's start with what tests do we do for for thyroid? And so some of this is going to be, hopefully, I'm hoping, Natalie, that it'll be somewhat you and I both getting to learn from each other about what we both do. So I'm excited about that. But what I typically draw for a thyroid patient, if I have a patient who comes in with classic thyroid symptoms, so let's say they have fatigue, they have weight gain, they have um, their bowels are moving slowly, they feel um, sluggish and slow, they're cold sensitive relative to other people, um, they may be experiencing some hair loss. If we have one of those patients and, and their their pulse rate may be lower, their physical body temperature in the morning may be lower. So if we have one of those patients, I'm probably going to draw a TSH, a free T3 and free T4, a total T3 and total T4, although I, I usually limit using those if they're free T3 and free T4 don't make sense. So if I'm trying to just sort of limit the 8,500 lab tests that I'm going to do, I'll, I'll, I'll skip the totals, but just get the freeze. The, um, the, then I'll get a reverse T3 and both antibodies, thyroglobulin and, um, and uh, thyroperoxidase. And then I like to get an SHBG because SHBG, sex hormone binding globulin, is affected by test of my thyroid level. So if your thyroid level is really high, your SHBG is also going to be high. Uh, it, it, in a perfect world, you'd have a zinc, in a RBC zinc, you would have to get a cellular level for, for that. So you can draw blood. When you get a blood test, you can either get a serum blood level, or you can get a RBC level. This is testing for how much is actually in the cell itself. And so in a perfect world, you would have, uh, um, if I had everything I wanted, I would get an RBC zinc level um, to find out RBC selenium. You could do the several micronutrient tests out there that are available. You could do a hair specimen. That's a good way to catch some things as long as they're not using uh selenium containing hair products right. which would throw things off
0: yeah, right say it again is that the dandruff shampoos
1: yes exactly exactly
0: yeah. so
1: those kind of throw things off a little bit if you can just if you can get patients to not use those for a little bit, but you can do a lot of micronutrient tests are helpful. They do, they either use white blood cells or red blood cells as their source. And so you're getting a really good cellular um, measure. Um, I have used, um, I've used the vibrant test. I've used the um, what's the one that begins with S. Cell so has a good one, don't they? Okay? The spectra micro- cell has a micronutrient test. Uh, I've had some question about their micronutrient testing because we've sent a couple of Specimens from the same patient and gotten different results on the same patient, so that's a little
0: happens, um,
1: but I think I think that they um generally have a good product and it it seems to correlate with what the patient's symptoms are, okay. And then uh, Vibrant doesn't, and then um, you can do a Genova test, so Genova has a test called a um, Neutraval. Yeah,
0: um,
1: the the nice thing about the Val is it gives you not just what's my B12 level in my blood but it looks at what does B12 do in the body? It looks at the precursor and the product of what B12 does. And it tells you, is there too much of the precursor suggesting that there's maybe not a B12, enough B12, or is there an overabundance of the product suggesting you may be over-treated with B12, which isn't super common, but possible. Uh, so that gives us a better, a more functional picture. If you had all the money in the world, you could certainly do both a micronutrient test and a functional test, which would give you a lot of good information to move from, or or maybe confuse you more. But I think those are, those are all really important. And so we'd go back to the beginning and look at, talk about thyroid. My um, goal range for a typical TSH, and keep in mind, this is what your brain produces in response to the thyroid level that's in your brain. Mm-hmm. So it's not taking into account what's happening in the body. It's not taking into account what's, um, what's going on elsewhere. This TSH is specifically produced in the brain in response to how much thyroid hormone is there in the brain, at, specifically at the pituitary. So lots of factors can affect that that are unrelated to what's happening, let's say, below the blood-brain barrier. Uh, So the TSH is helpful, but it's not the end-all be-all for thyroid disease. And so if the TSH is the only thing that you're going by to measure, this is going to be a problem. Um, I like that level to be between the TSH to be between one and two if possible, I do have some patients that we push more than that. And there's lots of various conditions where we would change that. But just for the general population of average person, one and two is probably a good range, somewhere between one and two. The lab range is going to be somewhere between one and a half and five, somewhere in there. Yeah. I think we're talking about overall normal versus optimal. Yeah. And you'll hear me reference that over and over again. If we're talking about a free T3 This blood test should be drawn, um, in the morning fasting. If you take thyroid medicine, it should be taken four hours after your thyroid medicine, the blood draw what it's doing. Yeah. Yes. If it's taken too close or too far away from that, that, that blood draw, then you'll, you're going to affect your free T3 level. So if I get something that doesn't make sense to me, I'm always going to go back to the patient and say, Hey, did you have your blood drawn? Was it four hours before, like we've talked about, or was it longer than that or shorter than that? And, oh, it was, you had just taken it. Okay, so no wonder your free T3 level is so high. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: we look at a uh, free T4, and so free T3, we want to be at least three. That would be sort of the bottom end of my comfortable level for optimal function. I think the normal range is between two and four, yeah. two and four. Four and a half, depending on the lab, and so I really like that to be on the high end of normal, somewhere um, above three. And some practitioners even push it three and a half or greater. Yeah, and it really is based on the patient's symptoms. If they're very hypothyroid symptomatic, you want to push that higher. If this is a patient with uh, with, uh, it just depends on the patient. So that's my good bottom end of my range is at least three.
0: I have a question for you. Where where do you see iodine fitting in on this? Because so many like i you know i've lately i've been doing this lugol's iodine test on my arm um so can i tell you that it lasts on my arm for about 10 minutes like Uh go on on. on. almost like so what the lugol's iodine test is for those of you who don't know is you take this you buy lugol's iodine and it's dark dark brown you drop four drops on your arm you on the inside of your forearm you rub it in it's going to leave this crazy stain and then the idea, you're supposed to do it at bedtime because it's, and the idea is you want to wake up in the morning and still have some stain. I can put it on in the middle of the day and within an hour it's, it's vanished. And even the fingers that I used to rub my arm are, it, they're, it's gone. What are you doing about that? I'm doing it more. I think I should in it at this point. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I had
1: a teacher in elementary school who used to bathe in iodine so that she would be tan all the time.
0: Oh yeah, that's unfortunate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, and I think I'm going to have to, as much as I don't like the taste of it, start putting a little bit in water and drinking it, you know, because I don't use fluoride toothpaste. I don't swim in chlorinated pools. Like I live in a place where so far from the ocean, like, and I don't use iodized salt. Like You know, we're all doing those things that we're told to do. Use sea salt, use this, use that. And meanwhile, we've left ourselves in a position where we're not getting iodine from anywhere anymore.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's a tough one.
0: And uh, and we're not
1: eating as much fish because the fish has mercury. So we're not exposing ourselves. Kelp isn't our favorite food most of the time. So you're not getting very much of that. Yeah. People are allergic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, are they allergic really, but who knows, but definitely getting iodine in the diet, I think. And so I'm just wondering, like at what point do you, because there's an iodine, isn't there a urine iodine challenge test that you can have people do also to determine how deficient they may be? Yes.
1: And I think that's probably the best way to go if you can get them to do. Yep, yeah, exactly.
0: It does involve keeping a jug of pee in your fridge for a period of time. I think it's a <laughs> 20- <laughs> Yeah. Sell sometimes. <laughs>
1: And it's so important because it's not only the thyroid that where it's, uh, where it's important, but also with all of your hormones, the the hormone receptors all require iodine for optimal function. So it's, it is a critical piece of of information for us to, to gather. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, then reverse T3 is so important because if your reverse T3 is high, it's the poor man's mitochondrial dysfunction marker. So if we're talking about how do we check for, um, for, oxidative stress, this is the way to do it is with a reverse T3. If your reverse T3 is high, I'm looking at either you're overdosed on your T4 mm-hmm. or, you, or and or you have some sort of mitochondrial dysfunction. And so um, both of those I'm going to, the you know, first thing I'm going to do is dial down. And this is the hardest thing for my patients to understand is if we're treat, if your TSH is high and your reverse T3 is high, I'm going to dial down your Synthroid if that's what they're on. And they're like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense to me. Please don't turn down my Synthroid. But I have to because that reverse T3 blocks all of your receptors. Hmm. So it should be in a two to one ratio with your free T3. Uh, and so, and remember that those are measured in different, at least in the United States, they're measured in different uh, uh, measurements. They're in picograms and anagrams. So you have to do the conversion, but yeah. it should be a two to one ratio. Joe, a simple rule of thumb is your reverse T3 shouldn't be greater than 15. That's a in the United States uh, measure. It's less than
0: 15. Yes. And meanwhile, your T3 should be around, oh, the free T3 is over three, three and a half. Over 3
1: Mm-hmm. Over three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those are really the ones that I make the most fuss about. The rest of them, I'll, I'll be more flexible with the uh, ranges. The antibodies, I know the antibodies, uh, a lot of labs will say that anything less than 40 is normal. I say, why do you have any thyroid antibodies? That doesn't make sense to me. I don't want you to have any. So that's the first thing. If you see uh, thyroid antibodies are less than 40, but they're considered normal, the reason I'm concerned is because I don't want you to have any.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we'll
1: begin to address that.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, and so, okay, well, that's, that's, uh, that's thyroid. And then at what point do you check with, in, with your patients about iodine or exposure to other halogen, halogen compounds that are going to block the iodine, just like the RT3 blocks the T3 you want, the fluoride, right. fluorines and those guys are going to, you know, kind of muscle in and block the iodine from doing what it needs to do.
1: Well, especially if you're seeing them have trouble with that, I'm visioning it in my mind, how the cascade of how it works. If you're seeing that they're having difficulty making that conversion from T4 to T3, yeah. or if you're seeing that they're having difficulty making the, specifically making the T4 in the first place, right. that's really where I'm going to start to, to investigate iodine. Hey, so I'll do, I'll do their initial visit. I might ask some of those introductory questions. Hey, why might you have some hypo, you sound a little hypothyroid, why, why might this be the case? Let's draw your blood. And when we get those results back, and it looks like yes, you're having trouble making it in the first place, um, you know, T4 is four items, T3 is three items, and so if you're having trouble making it in the first place, is this because there's a interference? Mm-hmm. And bromine is everywhere, you know, the all the fabrics, all the um, all the beds. If you do you have a new bed, do you have a new sofa? Because all of those are made with are, are protected with uh, fire retardant. Yeah. That's going to be damaging to you. A lot of pools now are made with bromine instead of being made with chlorine because no one wants a chlorine pool. And so now you're bathing in something that is protecting you or this
0: preventing you from being able to absorb your iodine. Wow. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's, that's thyroid. Is there anything else on thyroid or are we ready?
1: Yeah. Let's move on the, because I want to make sure we stick with the labs and get those specifically addressed. Yeah. I think the next thing I want to talk about, because I think there's so much to learn from a very simple things you can get from lab and quest, uh, mm-hmm. from any, from any labs, from regular, from Boston hearts, who I usually use, um, the things like a complete metabolic panel, a uh, um, complete blood count, and a lipid panel that you get from them. Those are the simple things that we can draw. And almost everyone when you have a physical from any doctor is gonna probably get at least those three done. Yeah. So I think we're gonna see quite a bit um, of difference. Again, the idea of the bell-shaped curve. There's research that came out in 2014 that demonstrates that a fasting blood sugar greater than 87 increases the risk of developing diabetes, by 6% for every point above 87. Oh, so that's my range now. I say if I see your, you know, the normal range is a, is less than 100 in most labs. They'll say for blood sugar less than 100, they'll call it abnormal. So my patients balk at me. My new patients always balk at me. They say, well, it says it's normal. Nope. And uh, the research says for every point above, I don't wanna wait until you have diabetes before I say, here's a problem. So uh, for fasting blood sugar greater than 87, this is just telling me there's already some insulin resistance at work. There's already something going on that we need to address. I'm not saying that you have diabetes. I'm saying, let's not ignore it until it shows up, until diabetes shows up. Let's begin to address the metabolic things that we can in the meantime to prevent you from developing
0: diabetes 10 years from now. Yeah. No, I think that's, I mean, I think it's huge. I mean, I was, I think I was telling you, like, I think I've, I just put in a continuous glucose monitor and it's come to my attention that my blood glucose numbers are higher than they should be, which is somewhat, it's a little bit shocking, you know, (laughs) So I'm sitting there going, okay, really what up with that? (laughs) This is not acceptable and if i spoke to a, a conventional doctor they'd be like oh god you're fine you're fine you're fine and i'm like no i'm not fine i want to be better than fine <laughs> what um which monitor are you wearing so i'm using the and and this is that's a good point that you to go to i'm using the uh freestyle libre 2 like the second version which is supposed to be better than the first But I don't, I've heard real horror stories about how inaccurate they can be sometimes. And I've, I was, uh, we were at our cottage and then yesterday was my son's graduation. So I haven't actually had a minute to sit with my keto mojo and do a finger prick because this is interstitial blood sugar. It it may be that this um, CGM is actually poorly calibrated. So it could be that this is a tempest in a teapot, but to your point. We don't want to wait. (laughs) Yes. I do
1: like that monitor. That's the one I recommend. And mostly because it's fairly inexpensive if you're buying it with
0: cash. Yeah. It's what, $100 per for two? Yeah. I mean, no. So in Canada, it's more expensive than that, but I can get mine at Costco. Okay. So I, it's a hundred bucks each. Okay. But we don't need a
1: prescription for it. It's great. You know, I've had a couple of patients with um, sleep disorders that we found that they were hypoglycemic at night because they were wearing their continuous glucose monitor. What an easy fix. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was a really, that was a really good find. I love having those continuous. So that's usually what I recommend. Hey, your blood sugar is high. Let's make sure what is it doing most of the time. So we want that uh, two hour, your blood sugar is going to go high when you first eat. So I don't worry about what their blood sugar is immediately after eating, but what's that two hour postprandial mm-hmm. and what's the first thing in the morning? What's your fasting blood sugar in the morning when you first wake up and really ideally
0: before you get out of bed, because that cortisol surge is really going to happen. I was going to uh, say, yeah, cause you, you are going to get a bit of a blood sugar spike first thing in the morning. You have to yeah. cortisol spike. Yeah.
1: And it's interesting if you look at um, Mikhail Asconi's research. He's the big uh, uh, rapamycin researcher. If you look at his research, he has this lovely article on benevolent hyperglycemia <laughs> that I love. And especially if we're talking about peptides at any point, uh, there's a lot of these peptides that are um, that are metabolism regulators. That when you first start using them, will actually show an increase in. Um, in blood sugar. And it's not because you have insulin resistance. It's because your cells are choosing to burn fat. And so they, you'll get this increase in blood sugar. That's, that's a response, not a, um, it's in response to choosing a different fuel source. Right. Peptides. Um, modesty will do it. Uh, dihexa sometimes will do it. And so you, I tell people, just wait six months before
0: you recheck. Oh, that's so interesting. It's very interesting. What have you seen with semaglutide? So I haven't seen it be as effective.
1: I'm kind of excited about the new uh, GIP-GLP combo that's just come out.
0: Epitide. And it's got a funny name, Munal or moon, moon, Mun- Munjaro. Munjaro, that's it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm kind of excited
1: about this because I think we're really going to really attack that incretin effect. It's a little bit confusing because the GIP it's got some back and forth confusing effects when you talk, when you're looking at how it works. I think it's because it works in different ways in different cells. So when you're when you're looking at the research, you're going to see that GIP works differently depending on where it's working. So now we're introducing a load of GIP to these patients. And you know the, the pharmaceutically super, uh, supervised or supported or promoted um, research shows s- significant drops in A1C and significant um, uh, improvement in, in uh, weight loss versus GLPs alone. So I think that's gonna be a promising candidate. I have a patient right now, his A1C um, has been as high as 11. Yeah. He is down to about eight. Um, After how long? Anyway, it's not great, but it's still better than it was. And so we've just switched him from a GLP-1 to the terzepatide, which I'm excited for him to try. So this, the jury's still out. I'll let you know when I find out. I'm going to be following lots of labs on him and see what else is affected, kidney function, et cetera.
0: Yeah, no, I think that'll be really, because I mean, I would say with the semaglutide in, and it's again, you know, when we first started talking about it, it was like, oh my God, it's this amazing thing. I What I've seen, and I mean, I'm not seeing it as a doctor. I'm seeing it as, as um, like in my Facebook community because I have so many people there and so many people have been using semaglutide, including me. And what I'm seeing is it works really well for some people from from a fat loss perspective and it doesn't work for other people. Yes, it doesn't work at all. It's like some people, A, it makes them really sick to their stomach, and it doesn't seem to move the needle for them for fat loss. And I've heard another practitioner say he thought that maybe if someone's very leptin resistant, um, the semaglutide wouldn't hit the mark for them. And I don't know if terzepatide will be different because it's slightly different pathways, um, but uh, definitely there's there's certain subset of people that just A, don't tolerate it, and B, they're so depressed because they, you know, they talk, they hear all the other people saying, "Oh well, I lost fifteen pounds, I lost twenty pounds, I lost thirty pounds," and they're like, "I just barf and I haven't lost a pound. <laughs> I feel terrible," or they feel very tired. So it's um, it is interesting with these medications that they come out and the research looks really really good, but still, when you see it on the ground, you're still seeing different things than they're reporting on their in their studies. Exactly, exactly,
1: yeah. I do think we have to watch with those patients, we can go back and uh, circle back to what we were talking about. We do have to watch kidney function with the semaglutide patients. Um, Because it suppresses appetite, it also suppresses thirst. Oh, interesting. So, these, so you have to counsel them ahead of time. Please, please, please drink lots and lots of water because they'll end up getting dehydrated because they're not taking enough protein. They're not getting enough um, water. And so these patients will end up with some kidney, it appears to be kidney problems that are, it's usually azotemia. It's pre-renal azotemia that's reversible when you hydrate them well and get them to, um, to get a little bit more protein in their diet, they do better.
0: Yeah, well, but, that, that's such a great point because I do think that, were the risk of these peptides because they suppress appetite so effectively is malnutrition. Like like they don't, they don't want to eat that much. And then they start to go for the wrong foods. And then they're like, well, I'm losing weight anyway. So what difference does it make? I can have a little bit of pasta. It's like, yeah. So you're starving your body of nutrients actually. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. That's why we use in those patients, we use a bio analysis
1: machine. Yeah. So anybody we put on semaglutide, we bring them back monthly, and we get their um, muscle mass, their um, their fat mass, whether they're hydrated well. It just tells on them. So I can say, hey, look, you are you're losing muscle. So all of your weight loss was all the good stuff. Oh. That doesn't usually happen with semaglutide. It's usually at least half and half muscle fat. Um, usually it's more uh, fat loss. So
0: yeah, I because th- it has an affinity for skeletal muscle insulin sensitivity, right? So, I mean, yeah. to me, the opportunity with semaglutide and probably with terzepatite will be the same. The opportunity is actually to improve your eating habits, to improve your exercise habits, to make the most of this window where you can build lean mass, eat a better diet and get all those benefits so that yes. you're not dependent on it for all, all eternity.
1: And, you know, we have great, st- great reports. I have patients who've lost 20 pounds, a guy in his seventies who lost 20 pounds and gained, I think he lost 20 pounds of fat and gained 10 pounds of muscle in his seventies. Now he also yeah. began, a, uh, began a, um, a, and he's being consistent, a resistance training program.
0: I love it. So, love it. Yeah. That's like that's amazing. That's exactly what we want to do for anti-aging, right? And it yes. it's talked about so little. Like we talk about, you know, manage your inflammation, manage your fat mass, manage your brain, but build muscle.
1: Yes. Oh, Perfect. sorry. I I confess he was also on um
0: so he was on semaglutide tesmoralin. That's interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Did both. Okay. Um,
1: fasting blood sugar. What's next? Okay, so if we go down that list and we're talking about, uh, if we're looking at a complete metabolic panel, I'm just doing it in my brain now. So um, the two markers of aging and disease that I think are really helpful is albumin and alkaline phosphatase. And I love those two because study after study after study shows if your albumin is greater than 4.5 and your alkaline phosphatase is less than 60, your chances of having a good outcome from that illness whether it be the recent virus, whether it be cancer, whether it be uh, um, pneumonia, whatever your heart disease, a, an albumin greater than 4.5 and a phosphatase um, less than 60 is, um, is beneficial in your recovery from and sustaining of that illness. So I call them markers of aging
0: and disease. But we want albumin uh, to be greater than 4.5 and alkaline phosphatase to be greater than 60. Less than 60. Less than 60. Okay. So we want alkaline phosphatase to be less than 60 and albumin to be greater than 4.5. And that sets us up for better outcomes if we come across a challenge.
1: Yes. Both of those go in the opposite direction with aging. We know that albumin goes down with aging. And we know that alkaline phosphatase goes up with aging. And so these are great markers of aging. If I monitor someone over time and I see that their alphas is going up, or I see that their uh, albumin is going up, then I know that this is a patient who's aging faster than I want them to. I love that. And then the other thing that's interesting about alkaline phosphatase, especially if we're talking about intestinal alkaline phosphatase, it will dissolve the, um, I think it's the lipid A moiety of the lipopolysaccharides. So remember lipopolysaccharides are the the cell surface of bacteria that may be in the intestines, the pathogenic bacteria. And alkaline phosphatase goes up in response to the presence of those. So if you're looking at your regular uh, um, complete metabolic panel and you see that your alkaline phosphatase is generally normal, 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 and all of a sudden you see an increase or over time you see an increase, one of the things to think about is what's happening in my intestines? Do I have some dysbiosis that's going on? Is there a problem with zonulin? Have I broken down my mucosal layer? Am I having trouble with... um, do I, am I getting enough fiber in my diet? So all those things you need to begin to think about. That's not the, the end all be all to tell you, yes, you have a disease there, but it means it, it refocuses our vision um, that elevated alkaline phosphatase to say, oh, is this possibly related to that? We also know there's a version that goes up um, that's a bone alkaline phosphatase that can go up with fractures, but also goes up with um, cancer of the bone. So just beware, there are other reasons why alkaline phosphatase will go up. But probably the most common reason is uh, something intestinal dysbiosis. So it's something that you should think about in in seeing an elevated So,
0: Just a quick question. So when you see an elevated ALKFOS, though, you don't know if it's from the gut or the bone. They don't know. know that in the lab. It's just now it's pointing your attention to, okay, let's investigate dysbiosis of some kind in the gut or could there be something going on in the bone? Could it be, um, you mentioned bone cancer, but could it be a situation where, um, osteoporosis is, is at play or does that not show up in the alkaline phosphatase? It could, especially if there's something that's rapidly depleting. So a hyperparathyroidism,
1: a, um, I'm trying to think of what else would rapidly cause you a heavy load of uh, steroids. Let's say you have lupus and you have a flare and you have to take a heavy dose. You probably would see your alkaline phosphatase go up, okay. you know, and, and you can, you can either ask the patient are you having symptoms, intestinal symptoms, yeah. uh, or, or you can do a specific blood test that will break it down for you into the various kinds of alkaline phosphatase. It'll give you a more specific bone-derived or intestinal-derived or other. And so you can get a more specific look, but you can also ask the patient. So I like to look at the, look at the patient. Yeah. Um, I
0: mean, so many people, like it's, you'd be hard-pressed not to find someone who couldn't do a little work on their gut and benefit from it these days.
1: Yes, 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 for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, you're, I'm going to pair that information with, uh, the, with their liver enzymes, the other liver enzymes. So uh, we know that, that alkaline phosphatase is one of the liver enzymes or can be a measure of liver function. So we also are going to pair that with your liver enzymes. And so the normal ranges for those typically are less than 40, but I the research is consistent with those optimally being less than 25. So if I'm seeing a patient who has a liver enzyme greater than 25, I'm talking to them about their over-the-counter pain medicine use. I'm talking about their alcohol intake. We're talking about dysbiosis. So let's say I see a high ALKFOS and a slightly high liver enzyme. Now we're talking about what's going on with your intestines. What's happening that you are, you know, are we, is there some sort of, um, uh, I'm also going to look at an SHBG. I'm also going other liver enzyme things. Is this specifically liver or are we talking about something that's happening in intestine in general? What's their bilirubin? Is their bilirubin elevated? So it's trying to put together a whole picture because none of these is specific enough to say, unfortunately, and I, I feel like all the time patients are kind of expecting us to have a blood test that is the answer to the problem. And there, that doesn't exist. So it's really putting, it's sort of like when you do a thousand piece puzzle mm-hmm. and you're putting together each little piece and you're like, "Oh, that's a, that looks like a face. And you find out, no, it's actually the back of someone else's head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, it's putting these pieces together. So having tighter ranges more than what the lab shows, first of all, it allows you to pick things up earlier than, than before they become a disease. Yeah. For sure. Um, and second, it allows us to put more pieces into the puzzle to say, oh, look at this. This is how this piece
0: fits here. Maybe this is what we're looking at.
1: And it directs us into a direction to look for where, what the root of the patient's problem is.
0: Yeah. No, I love I, I love this information. This is great. And it's actually, and I guess we're going to get to cholesterol shortly. Um, yes. Yes and it's the conversation we were having earlier where you've got your HDL, your LDL, your total cholesterol but LDL' has been painted with this horrible brush of being the bad cholesterol and in and of itself like an elevated LDL could tie back to the thyroid it could tie back to systemic inflammation it could and it's not bad we kind of need it <laughs> so, <laughs> it's 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 just doing its job guys it's just doing its job. so anyway, I didn't just not know. No,
1: I think that's a great segue. Let's go there. The, um, I completely agree with you. There was a study that just came out about total cholesterol, um, that there probably is a higher range. We need to kind of be keeping people in a higher range of total cholesterol. So even that 220, 250 is probably our best range to see people keep their total cholesterol. So that's kind of a flies in the face of most cardiologists, at least around here. And so it's a little bit of a challenge to figure out what we need to do because the information is coming from lots of different sources. Some of it is what's the source of your information, you know, are is, was it pharmaceutical funded? Um, the trouble is most research has to have some funding. So where are you going to get it? Who has the deepest pockets? Yeah. And so that's a, tr- that's a trouble. I, and And I don't know the solution to it except to do the very best we can. Yeah. So I think that we just have to realize that cholesterol is so important. It, in, the, in your mitochondria, cholesterol is converted to pregnenolone. Pregnenolone is one of the most important um, brain calming hormones that we have. So uh, for protecting your um, neurons from damage, I think pregnenolone is so important. Not only that, it's the precursor to all the other hormones, Mm -hmm. So if you don't have enough cholesterol, you can't make all the hormones.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. If Uh, you don't have enough cholesterol, you can't protect yourself from illness because making cholesterol is one of the ways our body takes care of um, bacteria and viruses and parasites. It surrounds them with a little fat layer. And then sends that fat layer off to be processed by the liver. So an elevation, like you're suggesting, of the um, the LDL cholesterol, I like to call it lousy cholesterol because it's it's it goes it goes up when you feel lousy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, your LDL cholesterol will be a little bit higher. For example, with the most recent virus we've had, it will be it will be higher in in the face of a lot of other illnesses. And so it's it's really a beacon more than it is a, uh, problem to be attacked. Yeah. So keep that in mind as you're discussing what your treatment is. And I'm, I'm not against using statins. There certainly are places for it. And I have used them in, especially in the, um, most recent virus that we've suffered, uh, but in some patients, but the, um, I think we do, we need to realize that, that lousy cholesterol is a beacon and not a, uh, it's not a problem to be attacked. We need to look for why is their LDL high and what can we do about that? And then we'll just see the LDL follow. It's just going to tell us, yes, you've done a good job. This is the right thing. So, uh, if we treat the LDL itself, we're going to run into problems with all the other things we already talked about inability to fight off, inability to make cells, inability to make hormones.
0: Yeah. And also what about looking, and I don't know your opinion on this, looking at the LDL breakdown itself. So what is, because LDL is, it really encapsulate, is it four different populations of you've got fluffy LDL, you've got hard little guys, you've got the oxidized little guys. You've got, so um, like how, at what point do you start to dig into those fractions to understand What's this LDL made of? Because, you know, I came, I read a study quite a long time ago now, and and, and I can't remember what type of study it was, but they they were talking about how in elderly populations they had found that people with the lowest cholesterol values were were more prone to depression and dementia than people who had what would be considered higher levels of cholesterol. And so, you know, talk about confusing the population. Like on the one hand, you've got a faction of people saying, we need to wipe out your cholesterol or you're going to die of a heart attack. And on the other side, they're like, yeah, well, you know, if you don't have enough cholesterol, you're just going to lose your mind. And, and, you know, you can imagine a person sitting there going, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Sorry, your muscles hurt. And so you don't feel like exercising.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a real problem for sure. And there's a, and, and so, for us as um, integrative advanced medicine practitioners, we really need to find um, someone that we can partner with to help make those decisions. And we also need to be doing things to treat this. It's not a matter of, of not. So one of the tests I do is, uh, I'll back up in a second and answer your question about the, the when do you get into them. Um, one of the tests I do is a um, CT coronary calcium score. Yes. I keep hearing about this. I just think it's worth it. If I'm seeing, you know, if this is a patient where I would have in the past, because I come from allopathic medicine, I was a family doctor for many years before I went into this advanced medicine. Um, I w- in the, if, if it's a patient who I would have in the past done a, um, uh, given them a statin and just sent them on their way, that patient now I'll do a coronary calcium score. And if it comes back zero, Yay. I'm very reassured. It's not perfect. Again, no test is perfect. Yeah. Uh, And I'll have that conversation with the patient. I have the luxury of having that conversation because of the kind of medicine that I practice and the time that I allow myself. But uh, that's a test that's really easy to do. It gives you good information. If they come back at 1200, they're going to the cardiologist. Yeah. We're doing a um, probably maybe a nuclear test, probably a cath we're doing, we're going to send them immediately. So, so that's a, that's an easy patient. The harder patients are like, what if they're 80 and they come back with a score of 250 or 300? Now, what do you do? Mm -hmm. That's a little bit tougher question. Uh, I'm going to aggressively treat them and retest quickly. I'm not going to let them go six months. Like I would a 30 year old or a a 50 year old. I'm going to do a little bit more aggressive, um, more testing
0: so what would you do for that person? Would, would you be putting them on a statin at that point? Or would you, there's that you have other tools in your toolkit. I love it. Yeah.
1: So I, when I first started out, I learned about the NMR testing a long time ago, back when I was regular family medicine. And I just never felt like it changed what I was going to do for the patient. So that whole panel that I used to get was really interesting Part of that's because I had one tool in my toolbox at the time. I was like, why would I do that test? It's not going to change anything. Uh, but the things that I finally pared it down to that really seemed to matter, I do a LP little a yeah. because I want to know their genetic predisposition. Yeah. I do, um, an ApoB. So ApoB is like the, um, it is the address label that goes on the outside of the package of cholesterol. So your cholesterol travels in your bloodstream in packages. Those packages have an address label on the outside that tells them where to go. This ApoB says, go to the arteries and make plaques. I know that's very simplistic view of how it is, but it's a really easy way to think about it. Yeah. Um, and so if you have a lot of ApoB that's sending your cholesterol packages to your arteries to make plaques, that's a problem or to, to bind up infection or whatever. You're going to see that with your, with your ApoB as well. But if you're in any inflammation, that's when you're going to see that ApoB go up. Mm -hmm. If your, uh, ApoA is higher and I don't, I also don't usually test ApoA but if your APOA is high, then that's sending your, if that's the address label, it's gonna send those packages to your liver to be processed out through the stool. Hallelujah, it's a good measure, kind of goes hand in hand with your um, HDL, which is why I don't test it because I follow HDL instead. Okay. Again, not perfect. It's just a way to think about it. And so for me trying to, I got to the point at one point where I was ordering 30 or 40 tests on every patient. And I finally said, I don't have time to go through all these labs. Yeah. So, so my shrunken down version is lipid panel, ApoB, LP little a. Yeah. And then if they have other things, if they have a significant family history, if they have, blah, I'm going to do a lot of other things. I'm going to do a myoglobin. I'm going to do a, um, fibrinogen. I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to do a, um, LPPLA 2 I'm going to do a, um, a F, uh, F2 isoprostane, all those things we're going to check if we have, if we find, if we're really checking them and following them. But if yeah. I can get them back and I can treat them and get them where they're feeling, where they're uh, looking normal, then I'm going to, or normal-ish, then I'm going to not worry about it. You know, if I get their 300 coronary calcium score back, I'm probably going to be checking all those laps.
0: If you're a listener of this podcast, you're probably actively looking for ways to maximize your daily regimens and protocols. And if you haven't yet added nitric oxide to your daily wellness routine, you've got to stop and listen to the rest of this message. Throughout your body, there are over 60,000 miles of blood vessels. Nitric oxide is responsible for circulating blood to all those vessels through vasodilation. But as we age, we make less nitric oxide naturally, circulation becomes less efficient, Meaning the blood carrying critical oxygen, glucose, and nutrients just isn't getting to all those miles. Berkeley Life is my go to supplement for supporting nitric oxide levels in myself, my family, and my clients. Their daily supplement provides a powerful and precise dose of dietary nitrates, the building blocks of nitric oxide, for your body to make its own nitric oxide throughout the day. I've noticed such a difference in my energy levels, my stamina, and my recovery time. The more I learn about nitric oxide's role in the body, including its impact on oxidative stress levels and proper hormones, hormone balance, the more I encourage all my listeners and clients to incorporate it into their regimens. You can access Berkeley Life's nitric oxide support supplements by going to berkeleylife.com and using practitioner code NIDDBL to place your order when you register and check out. You will also save 10% off your first order. Once again, berkeleylife.com, practitioner code NIDDBL. And now let's get back to the show. So going to the VLDL oxidized the LDL, that, that degree of lipid testing, do you do that right off the bat? Like, do you think people should be looking at that? Or do you think that it's overkill or is this, or is there a situation when you want to do that kind of testing?
1: I like the oxidized LDL because it's easily available. I can get it. uh, We use, again, we use a Boston heart and uh, I can get that easily from them. So that I will do more often. Yeah. It's probably not in my initial screen unless I think, so if if I'm seeing a patient, um, when would I use that? It's going to be in my initial screen if they have um, uh, Lyme, mold exposure, uh, some sort of other toxicity that I'm looking for. If this is a generally healthy person, unless I think they're overtraining, I'm probably not going to do an oxLVL off the bat. Okay. Um, in most patients I'll end up getting that Genova NutriVal cause it's such a great overall health screener and it's in that. So I probably won't get it on my initial screening of the patient. I'll probably get it on a later or I'll do it in the, um, the NutriVal.
0: Yeah. The more advanced testing kind of thing. Yes. Nutrients and that kind of thing. Exactly. I love it. So can we talk also a little bit about LDL and, um, and inflammation or, or as a sign of inflammation or a sign of, as you were just saying a minute ago, infections, like how do people, and and I'm guessing it's going to depend on other markers that you're seeing that are pointing to that as well. Like maybe a a CRP is high or other inflammatory markers. Is that, so CRP is something
1: else I'm going to probably do on a screener, partly because it's part of my, um, I have an algorithm I use to measure the patient's age that's just cheap, <laughs> um, but it's, um, it's a CRP, CBC, and CMP, and various factors from those, and um, based on Dr. Morgan Levine's uh, research, yeah. so I do a, um, and so CRP is part of that test. So CRP is a general marker of tumor necrosis factor alpha and IL-6. Yeah. So I know if their CRP is high, their TNF alpha and their IL-6 are also high. So uh, then, I'm talk- then we're talking about some sort of great inflammatory problem going on. Again, my goal for a CRP is less than one.
0: Yeah.
1: If their CRP is anything greater than one, I'm concerned about what's going on with them. Yeah. Uh, we have to figure out. Now, I have a few patients who I just know their CRP is two. That's where it is. And if it goes up to three or four, then I get concerned, but their two is where they live. That's where their body is. I'm not saying I don't get concerned and figure out why, but mm-hmm. it might be a patient who has lupus. It might be a patient who has Lyme disease. It might be all kinds of reasons why their CRP might hover higher than I want it to.
0: What about an athlete, like someone who just does crazy exercise, like, you know, like a CrossFit person or... Yes. So you would expect for their overtraining to
1: definitely cause that. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that LDL is going to go up in response to that to try to counteract the, um, the elevation in their um, TNF-alpha and their IL-6. So you're going to see that happen. And yeah, so you're going to put together all these pieces, CRP, um, LDL. You're going to look at their monocytes in their CBC. Mm-hmm. A monocyte level greater than 10, greater than nine, it's hard to find one (laughs) that's that low. So most of them, I can see most patients that are, uh, I can keep them less than 10, but a monocyte level that's high, you're going to be concerned about them having um, that. So then you also talk about chronic illnesses like CMV, like EBV, uh, do they have a chronic viral infection that's kind of distracting their immune system from doing its daily job?
0: Yeah, that's crazy. I love it. Um, and I see guys LDL, not bad. I mean, not bad on its own. It, it, it needs to be, it needs a new name. <laughs> Just needs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we've done, we've done cholesterol. Um, are we, are we looking at triglycerides at all in, in a meaningful way? Is that, that's gotta be part of your, cause that's easy. Like, you know, here, I mean, the problem here is I've spoken to people and here being in Canada, like they have to fight with their doctors to get them to, to look at anything more than TSH. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's, and, and I've heard it also out of certain people in the U S and I think it's part of it is because your insurance company only allows you to go to certain doctors and they're, you know, they have their own limitations or whether it's their mindset or whatever the insurance company will pay for. But, you know, triglycerides is something that anybody can get. Yes. It's, it's standard. And do you, do you look to triglycerides for, do you see them as also feeding into other pieces of the puzzle in different ways? Absolutely. So it's part of my metabolic
1: health thought process. So I think of that as part of metabolic health. Um, and I'll include in that an A1C, the yeah. fasting glucose we mentioned before, uh, a fasting insulin. Yeah. I love adiponectin. It's my pet. Um, I just, it's, it, I love adiponectin. I don't know why. It's so cool. I, I just love it. Um, it's, uh, actually oh, I could go on and on. I'm sorry. I'm going to leave. We'll leave that for another,
0: no, no, but let's tell people what adiponectin is and why you love oh, yeah. it. I mean, so We still have some time. We're good. It's a, it's a signal to your other
1: cells that they should choose to burn fat. Yeah. We, we, Those we people love this guy, guys. I mean, we, we want this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it's so cool because it's three different little, um, pieces of adiponectin. They have to be together in a trio. And they're joined together at a cysteine moiety. The three are joined together by this cysteine, which is a, an amino acid that's in this, uh, sh- this peptide. So it's a peptide, I mean uh, adiponectin is a peptide. Okay.
0: Um,
1: it, um, in order for them to be joined together, the cysteine has to bond together in, in this sulfur bind. Sugar from your diet comes in and blocks that cysteine from binding. So now the trio can't bind together. Therefore, they can't leave the cell. So the signal to burn fat can't get out to tell other the other cells. So, so the simple. cells, yeah. It's really smart. It's a brilliant design, right? Brilliant design. And so the because there's so much sugar around, you want to block the fat burning mechanism. And so you increase your you you um, have all this adiponectin laying around, but you don't allow it to become its full mature self. And, and then be released to do its work in other cells which is great. So it can be because you have low sulfur there can be you know if there's a problem with um, there's a lot of uh, metabolic problems that can occur with not having enough uh, thiols in your in your body that can be a whole other conversation but the, the biggest reason is because of dietary sugar. And so, uh, this is your body's protective mechanism. So it kind of tells on you that you're taking in too much sugar in your diet, um, Um, which is, your adiponectin is low. Yes. Adiponectin is low. Exactly. And we're talking about a blood level of adiponectin being low. And the measured blood, the measured adiponectin is that trio of the three, uh, peptides to join together at their cysteine bonds. And so um, you're gonna see a, a, I like to see an adiponectin be greater than 15. Yeah. And uh a lot of my patients flip hang around 10. So if you get an adiponectin that's less than 15 and an insulin that's greater than 10, and an A1C that's greater than 5.4, now we're talking about someone who has some insulin resistance or some impaired fasting glucose. So we're, we're talking about a cellular metabolic dysfunction Mm -hmm. and um, no wonder the patient can't, can't burn fat, can't lose weight because they are um, either telling their cells or by their metabolic dysfunction, telling their cells to leave the fat where it is. Don't go through lipolysis and break down, use sugar as a fuel source. And um, now we're having problems with patients
0: having difficulty losing weight. Right. And which is, would be also the disaster of people who get confused and eat fat and sugar. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. what got me too fat.
1: Yep. Yeah. So then we get um, uh, lipogenesis and creation of more uh, fat stores rather than lipolysis and breakdown.
0: Yeah. Without the ability to use them and break them yeah. down. Yes. Yeah. 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 So that, you know, big bowl of rice with fatty stuff on it or your poutine bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) You
1: know, in in theory, it's a good idea. If you have those bowls where that starts with the protein at the top and then it goes to the vegetables and then you eat your rice in theory, it's a good idea. As long as you eat them
0: one at a time in that order. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise you just, you pig out on the, yeah, no, because theoretically you should be filling up on the protein, finishing off with the vegetables, a little bit of healthy fat and then if there's room, and that that should be the order, right? Then if there's room, you have that carb. But unfortunately, our primitive brain dives for the carb. <laughs> there's always room for the rice.
1: Right? I confess, I had the most amazing brisket, mac and cheese last night. <laughs> oh, my God, you did not. Oh, it was delicious. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of have to do what you have to do. Yeah, this is not so, I
0: never eat mac and cheese. It was amazing. It's definitely one of the. That mac and cheese is one of the. Did you hear that craft dinner is changing its name from macaroni and cheese to mac and cheese? Really? Yeah, I just read that today. I mean, this is a stupid fact, guys. I know the people listening to the podcast are going, and I needed to know this why. I'm not. (laughs) exception to (laughs) every rule. Okay, so we've done triglycerides. We've talked about adiponectin, your pet peptide. Are there any other labs or blood markers you wanted to talk about today?
1: You know, I'm super curious if you would share what you use for your, um, for your, um,
0: genetic testing. Oh yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So, I mean, the, the genetic test that I've, I, you know, and I've, (laughs) I'm very loyal to it and yet every once in a while, it's not the cheapest genetic test. So I'll try and go to someone else. And then I keep coming back to this one. And in part, because of how they present the information to the patient, well, to the client in my case, and to the practitioner to help me to interpret it properly. And it's the appear on, um, test. And I was trained, you know, I did training with them a couple of years ago. And um, I find that, you know, the, the tricky thing with genetics, and I think maybe it's a little bit it's it's a little bit like how you're talking about blood work, but even more so. And that is that it's not prescriptive, right? Just because in what we're talking about when we look at your genetics is you're we're talking about a predisposition. And we're also talking about a predisposition based on what we know right now. And genetics more than anything, and I mean, everything is a little bit like this, but genetics a lot like this is that there are so many genes that we don't know what they do that are working in the background. And if there's one thing we know about the human body is that it has a lot of redundancy built in as safety mechanisms. Yes. I'm, you know, I feel like, and they teach this very well in this course, you've got to watch your language when you talk to someone about what their genetic report is showing because you actually wouldn't say to someone, oh, you have this gene that is going to cause you to do this. You're actually going to ask a question and say, well, you know, some people have genes that show that maybe they have trouble feeling full when they eat. And in some cases that is the case, but you're not going to say to someone, oh, look, you've got this messed up satiety gene. You, I'll bet you can eat till the cows come home. Because sometimes a person's like, actually, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm really good on portion control. So you're going to want to ask the person, well, you know, how do you do with food or how do you do with sugar? I, you know, there are certain genes that like, I carry this one variant of a gene. And the other thing that they excise out of your language in through this course is mutations. Yes. This is not about mutations. This is about what variation, what, what variant of a gene do you have so that if you understand it and we see it reflected in your life how do we how do we kind of biohack around it how do we change your behavior and um, so this one gene they've nicknamed the cookie jar gene which is a gene that and i think it's TAS2R93 like it's about a whole list of letters that i never forget i never remember but the cookie jar gene is a gene that the, for people who have it and who are homozygous, I think it's A for this gene. When we start eating sugar, it literally flips a switch in our head and we can't stop. Mm. If you don't start, you're good. But if you start stopping is really hard. And I know. That Does that feel true for you? Absolutely. Like if I start eating um, like gummy bears or which gummy bears are my, you, you know, you've got the mac and cheese and brisket. I've got the gummy bears. So, you know, gummy bears or like certain cookies and stuff like that. I, like it is really, it is, I have to exercise a huge amount of willpower to stop myself. And whereas other people they're like, yeah, they can have a couple and they walk away. They're fine. Yeah. And so some people, but, but I have come across a couple of people who have this are homozygous on this gene, and you're and you say to them, you know, how do you do with sugar? And they're like, no, nah, I don't, I don't care for it much. And so it's you know you wonder like, did they adapt and figure out, or and usually they're people that are quite lean, they have a really healthy diet, the whole nine yards. Did they at some point, as they, you know, in their life, figure out, yeah, that sugar thing doesn't work for me, and they just don't go there. Or is there something else at play that we don't really know about that's coming in and overriding the effect of this cookie jar gene? But for some people, and for me in particular, I know if I don't want to eat sugar, then I need to stay away from it. Because once I start, it's game over. <laughs> so, And so, so in a way, it's very informative, right? Because it takes, for some people, they carry a lot of shame around these things, except, especially people that are very overweight, for example and so helping them to understand oh you know maybe it's maybe they're, they they have a shortage of dopamine receptors or their pathway for breaking down dopamine is very upregulated and then so helping them to understand what's going on in the background and strategies and ways for them to 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 help themselves to all compensate for that can be really powerful so
1: yes that's- I love that. I, I love that you that you made that very clear because I think there's only a few, you probably know the number better than me. Is it something like 40 diseases that have a direct link with a gene
0: with a genetic variant? Yeah. And, and other we talk about those, right? Because that's like in the realm of disease. That's we have geneticists talk.
1: Yes. And I think what's so interesting, I've been fascinated to to follow the research that's going, that's ongoing with epigenetics. Yes. Yes. So fascinating. And I think the more we know, the less we know. I think this is such an evolving, it's so exciting to be part of it and to watch what's going on. The things that they can tell you um, based on your epigenetic. Testing. I think that's really fascinating.
0: So do you do that now? Do you do any of the epigenetic testing like aging? The age, yeah, I use it, I do. I use the true diagnostic uh, DNA methylation test that gives you your biological age versus your chronological age. I find that really interesting. I think that's oh, interesting. And it's more interesting now, of course, that we believe that we have strategies that can help people to change, right? So it would have been less interesting when those tests first came out. And the belief was, well, there's nothing we can do. So why would I tell someone that they're aging twice as fast as time is passing by if it's just setting them up to be depressed and older than they are? So whereas now, you know, understanding that your behaviors, your lifestyle and certain supplements or certain peptides like the bioregulator peptides are, you know, to the people who've been studying them for a long time, are nothing more than very powerful epigenetic switches that they can flip genes on and off. So now that we have a toolkit, and, and so much of it is lifestyle, which I also find I, to me, no, you don't have to go spend like a gajillion dollars. Maybe you could just stop, you know, staying up till three o'clock in the morning eating candy. And that, yes. that will slow down your aging in and of. If you can get rid of that habit, we can start to slow things down a little bit.
1: Well, it's interesting, Natalie. I used to poo-poo people um, uh, wearing the wearables because I thought, well, how is that gonna make a difference? Well, it's so interesting because I can have a conversation with a patient over and over and over again about how they need to get more hours of sleep. But if their wearable tells them they need to get more hours of sleep, they will start getting more hours of sleep. Absolutely, well, and and they see it reflected. Right? They come back and they say, "Do you know, I, I started sleeping three more hours a night, and it's amazing how much better I feel."
0: And you're like, "I know we had this conversation." So <laughs> you got the CGM on the back of their arm, and they're like, "You know, I started sleeping, and all of a sudden my blood glucose seems to be lower. Oh yes." God. And they're going, "Huh? Yeah. Um, yeah." And, but you're cheering them on, right? Because yes. And I don't blame people for this at all. Honestly, I think that if we can, if we, if it's as simple as wearing, whether it's an aura ring or a bio strap, whatever your wearable of choices, if it's as simple as helping people to connect the dots between their behavior and, and an outcome that, and on top of that, maybe that they feel, which is, you know, that's nirvana, right? Something is one thing, but then if they feel different, you know, we now become so much more invested in that outcome. I think that's just where the power lies. And and in many ways, I feel like it puts the power back into the person's hands. Absolutely. Right? And it's the best to watch them come
1: in so excited. Look at my HRV. It went from this to this. And I did this intervention. So exciting. So yay, bring them on. I love them now. Yep. We have um, a sleep number bed. I have a funny story. We have a sleep number bed and we both wear aura rings. And uh, I kept finding that my sleep number bed was measuring about 30 to 45 minutes longer sleep than my aura ring was measuring. I thought, this is so strange. (laughs) It's because my husband rolls over onto my side of the bed in the morning and sleeps in an extra 30 to 45 minutes. What's a sleep number bed? I've never heard of that.
0: Um, it's air filled, and you can change the setting on the. It's so comfortable. Oh my gosh, I love it. I just um, really expensive mattress. I can't hear about a new mattress. Okay. The- <laughs> <laughs> I do love my sleep number, bed. but you, um,
1: you, you change the setting on the um, the how firm. Dense is how firm it is. Yes. Based on, um, how you sleep. And so you find your sleep number and that's what your sleep number is. And you, it changes whether you're sleeping on your side or sleeping on your back, it will change the pressure points. It's, it's great. I love my sleep number, but it also measures, it gives you a very
0: simple HRV. It does give you a very simple HRV. Wow. And so Mm -hmm. is this something you add to your mattress or is this a mattress you buy? Mattress. Uh, Okay. No, I just got a really good, I've got an Essentia, which I love. Um, So, and, and my husband, you know, it took him a little while to recover from that purchase. (laughs) Won't be bringing up any other kind of mattress for a little while.
1: Mm -hmm. That's so important though, to have, to get good sleep.
0: You have to have the right mattress. Totally. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And the the nice thing about the one we got, the Essentia, I actually had Jack DeLaccio on the podcast. That'll be, It'll either have come out just before yours or just after because he was recent. Um, and it's, it is remarkable how, you know, how big an impact that mattress has on your, and, and we don't think about it, right. We keep the same mattress for 20 years, 25 years, and you spend so much of your life on that mattress. And it has such a huge impact on your, on your health, like from the off gassing of the fire retardant stuff, they, spray on it like you were talking about earlier for thyroid to you know how it gets all saggy like our old mattress i was feeling like I was rolling down the hill i, mean, I was getting oh it. yes so bad <laughs> like, kind of hanging onto to the edge of the bed so so getting that sorted out is it's and and i think it's it's the simple things first before we get to the fancy stuff and i think part of that is what you were talking about today and these are in many cases, these are basic lab metrics that you can get from a basic blood panel that is going to give you, if it's looked at by the right person in the right way, and they're not just looking at one number, it can give you so much information about where you're at with your health. Right. Which, uh, which um, intestinal health testing do you do? So my I don't use a ton of it right now. So personally, I mean, I've, I, I don't use a ton of it right now because I'm not doing that kind of work with clients. So I like to, I very often will partner with a physician and I let them do some of that more advanced testing. Yeah, we do, a um, flip back and forth. I like the Vibrant
1: America test. I like the Genova test. Genova is covered by Medicare, so I probably will do that yeah. with uh, most of my Medicare patients. I'll do. I don't have that many anymore, but the patients I do have that have Medicare, I'll use that. Uh, Genova. The I like. You know, the they give different information. So um, Genova. I think the zonylin is an add-on of something fifty dollars or something add-on. The um, Vibrant, I think, includes it automatically.
0: Yeah, uh-huh. I do have a lab in Canada that will, and actually, they work in the U.S. as well that do just a separate zonulin test. That I okay. would do for my clients because mm-hmm. you know, I, one thing, one of my pet peeves is people that do uh, food sensitivity testing and they haven't tested to see if the gut's permeable. Yes, I, you know, you're gonna show up, and you know, that's when you get panicky clients. Who yes. are like, oh my God, I can eat four foods. My life is over. And it's like, okay, well, let's just see if you have got permanent permeability first, because if you do, let's put that away for a little while and do some work. Yeah. There's some things we can do, um, including some peptides. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we have five minutes left. Okay. Let's give people a crash course on some of the peptides. I think some people, I, actually, you know what? Everybody knows BPC-157 is going to help with gut permeability, but let's talk about the one that is starting to get a bit more airplay um, and talk about that one because I think it's a little less known and it's pretty exciting. On the it's, it's my unsung hero right now and
1: in a lot of my patients. It's, it's been fun to use. So lorazetide, AT-1001, I believe is its chemical name. Uh, chemical name may not be accurate, but it's number name. Um, and think about lorazotide as, uh, let's, let's basic simple down how this intestinal wall works. So if you think about a starter home neighborhood where newly married people will move into their starter home and it's just house after house, after house, 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 and there's 10 feet between each house. And those have a, um, a fence, a large tall a wooden fence in between each house and you have a little dog in your backyard, and maybe some kids. Uh, that's what your intestinal wall looks like: is the row of houses with the fence in between. The fence in between is the tight junctions that keep things out that aren't supposed to be in there, unless you have a key to the lock, or unless you you know can get in through the through the, the front door of the house. So the um, let's say something comes up. Stress can be a trigger for this. Mm -hmm. Let's say an infection. Uh, Let's say you have a colonoscopy and you get the uh, prep before your colonoscopy. Let's say you have antibiotics for a urinary tract infection, for example, or a sinus infection. Uh, Those sort of things are going to um, raise a protein called zonulin. Zonulin then goes and breaks down the intestinal barrier. The intention is, Zonulin's on purpose. It's not a bad, it's, it's like LDL. It's not bad. It's intentional. Its goal is to open up the, the way for the immune system to come out and help Uh, fight off this infection that's present in the intestinal lumen. Unfortunately, it allows a lot of intestinal and and a lot of things to get into the body. And then we run into inflammation and all kinds of other problems. So if we can keep that zonulin from, especially in the case where there isn't an active infection, let's say there's a significant stressor for whatever reason, you just found out that your, you know, house was burned down or something terrible. um, Your... um, what we want to do is block that zonulin from breaking down the intestinal barriers. So we also know that, um, that um, gluten can be a, a trigger for zonulin release. And so this is one of the reasons why a gluten-free diet is really helpful no matter what your disease state is. There can be lots of benefits. Even if you don't actually have celiac disease, yeah. you can avoid gluten in your diet, blah, blah, blah. So if we find out that your zonulin is high, one of the things we can use is this amazing peptide called zonulin, was called lorazotide, that blocks the zonulin and keeps it from breaking down those uh, the barriers between the intestinal epithelial cells. Um, the sweet spot dose, it comes in several different doses. It usually comes in a 0.5 and a 1, and it seems like the best effect is actually at the 1. This is not a more is better peptide. If you do actually have celiac disease, and most of the research with this is in patients with celiac disease, probably because that's where they'll get it approved quickly uh, because more rare diseases, drugs can be approved more quickly for more rare diseases. So um, if you have um uh celiac disease we'll probably get it approved for that so just be aware it's probably going to be available as a um, pharmaceutical in the not too distant future but right now it's available compounded through um lots of different places and through some some, um, labs as well yeah research labs and the um uh this is given three times a day before meals ideally 15 or 20 minutes before you eat And then I do have some patients who do really well if they just take it before a meal that they know where they're going to have gluten Mm. or uh, or if they take it um, once a day, this can also be helpful. I have some patients, it's not not inexpensive, it's a peptide, so it's not going to be inexpensive. And so some people can get away with just using it on days when they know they're going to need it or just using it on days when they, um, or just using it once a day instead of three times a day.
0: So for once a day, would it make sense at night? Basically, you're done eating, You're, you know, you're, your body's repairing as you sleep at night. I wonder if that nighttime dose might be just what the body needs to kind of repair the damage from the day, or do you think it's better off in the morning to prepare the body for the day? I think it's better
1: as soon as you can. This is why the original dosing was done before meals because the goal is to block zonulin from even being released in the first place. Right. It doesn't do any mucosal repair except for removing the zonulin. Yeah. Um, it doesn't do mucosal repair. So you're going to need to do glutamine. You're going to need to do marshmallow. You're going to need to do all the things that you would normally do for, um, for uh, barrier mucosal repair, butyrate, fiber, all those things. But you're, um, uh, But what you want to do is take this before your exposure, which is why in some cases we think it would work best if you just take it 20 minutes before breakfast
0: every morning and then go about your day. Well, and that's interesting because some of the smart formulas we're seeing out there, and I was just telling you earlier about this new, relatively new company out of Australia called Level Up Health. And what they've done is they've smartly taken BPC-157 and paired it with the lorazetide and the tributyrin and the glutamine and the zinc carnosine. So he's really, beautiful. He's this, he's, oh, and I think his next iteration is going to have the KPV in there as well. So creating this kind of holistic formula that will block the zonulin, will help to repair the damage. Like it's just, yes. it's a little bit like a little symphony, right? And I, I, I just said to him, I said, you know, I just love that you, that we're starting to see this kind of more elevated thinking around the peptides because, you know, those of us who've been around peptides for a while, we're, we're starting to sound like a broken record, like, you know, BPC 157 on its own is fantastic, but it's not going to do it all. And so now we have people starting to think that way and saying, okay, what else can we bring in to complete the picture, of, as it were?
1: Yes, absolutely. That's brilliant. I'm so glad to hear he's doing
0: that. Yeah, no, me too. So unfortunately, we're kind of at a time, which I feel really... I want to keep talking. So (laughs) we're going to do a part two because I think what we'll do part two is maybe get a little deeper into the GI testing. um, That'd be great. And that kind of stuff. But maybe we'll leave it at that for today. And maybe, Suzanne, you can tell people where they can find you and how to get in touch if, um, if they so feel, even though you've got a very deep wait list. Nevertheless, Yes, we're in
1: Atlanta, right around Atlanta. We're just outside in the suburbs of Atlanta. And uh, I have two nurse practitioners who have been trained by me, who work for me. And then I'm on Instagram and on uh, Facebook. And you'll find me on Natalie, sometimes answering questions for her when I have a minute.
0: <laughs> Dr. Turner shows up. It's amazing. Um, and then it's Vine Medical is the name of your clinic. Vine is in grapevine. Yes. Love it. And, and on Facebook, I mean, Instagram, is it Dr. Turner, Dr. Suzanne Turner? Dr. S. Turner, D-R-S. Mm-hmm. Dr. S. Turner, perfect. Then yeah. thank you so much for your time today. It it's is such a pleasure, Natalie. You. Always so great to see you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly, or if you'd like to leave any comments, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application, just answer a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.